You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and this is part two of a two-part series with Tony Luke Jr., one of the faces of the Philadelphia cheesesteak scene. If you haven't heard part one yet, go back and listen to that one now. It'll serve to introduce you to where we are going to jump right in, which is the founding of Tony Luke's. So my dad wanted to do a sandwich shop. So he drove around and there was a piece, there was an old doggy diner, piece of ground on Oregon Avenue. Now remember, people look at that spot now and they go, oh my God, it's the greatest spot. There was nothing there. When he found that spot, no one would put a business there. There were train tracks coming across. There was the bridge, you know, under 95. There was a, a Wendy's across the street. There was nothing there. It was industrial. It was for trucks. It was, no one would do it. Right. Now he had no money, my father. He had sold the business. They gave him a few dollars down and he went to, to get the property. But no one knew who owned it. No one. Oh, so he just drove by and said, I want that. And he couldn't find any records of who owned it. According to the records, the owner died. So no one, you know, no one knew or something. Now, I'm not 100%. Yeah, sure. Because I'm not my dad. He lived that. I didn't. So I'm going off memory and I, it could be a skewed. Sure. So yeah. well, anyway, he's talking to a friend of his and he's talking about wanting to get that property. And the guy that he's talking to goes, oh, yeah, I know who owns that property. The guy died. His son has it. And he's like, do you know where the, where the son lives? And he's like, yeah. So my father went over with no money literally no money. And he said, look, the property's just sitting there. I'd like to buy it. I'd like to give you X amount down and then pay you so much a month. We could write up some kind of a contract. And the kid was like, well, I'm not doing nothing with it. And he got, he got the ground. Wow. Well, now we have to build it. Well, there's no money. Now, let me tell you something. You want me to go in your refrigerator and take out food and make you dinner? I don't care what you got. I'll find something and put it together. You want me to write you a song? Do it. Want me to serenade you? Do it. You have acting you want me to do? Do it. The only thing I know about tools is what they look like. <laughs> Most names I don't even know. Yeah. So here's my father, me, my brother Nikki, and this guy Frankie are literally digging to get a foundation made to put a building up. Now my father can do everything. He's an electrician, he's a carpenter, he can do plumbing, he can do, lay tile, you know. The only thing he can't do is lay a foundation, which he had to get someone to come in and do it. So here we are, four people, building the building. So when someone says the business was built from the ground up, it was literally built from the ground up. And my father kept running and running and running, and there was no money, so we would build, stop, he would go to work. Whatever he do, driving trucks, whatever he had, we'd go to work, save up money, come back, build more. What, so what were you doing when, when you guys were building? Like, did you have to no, be I was, told? No, I was staying, you know, just helping where I could at Frankie's or doing whatever I had. But I was living with my mother and father and my kids, so yeah. I really didn't have any bills. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was yeah. like, we were all living together, my brother, all of us. And... 
So we build a little, and I remember it was sunny, hot, summertime. My father had been going seven days straight, nonstop, and a lunch truck would pull up, and we would go to eat. And I heard this very faint cry. I heard, Anthony, Anthony, Anthony. I'm like, what is that? And I knew it was coming from the back of the building. And I go in the back, and my father's on the ground. And he don't look looks horrible. And I remember picking him up, screaming to start the truck, to get him, I didn't know what was wrong with him, get him in the hospital. And I remember putting him in the truck, I was flying, blowing red lights to get him. And we took him to, I think it was Methodist. And I ran in, I said, my father's in the truck. There's something wrong with him. I don't know. And they came out and his blood pressure was like, he was literally a second away from a a massive stroke and he was in a hospital for quite a while and everything got held up and then he came back out and we started building it but he almost died i mean it literally almost killed him was there was there any consideration to to stop doing that <laughs> no no because what do we do then right like my father never liked working for anyone he did it when he was younger and he hated it he can only be his own boss so he was not going to go back to work and work for someone but I remember we finished building it. But one day in particular, he had ordered like a, 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 a truckload of cement. It was 110 degrees out in August. And if you know anything about cement, once you lay it in that kind of heat, it hardens almost. And I remember him smoothing out everything. I don't know what I'm doing. I never did cement. But I was actually not bad at it because I'm Italian and I guess laying cement is in our DNA somewhere. <laughs> right. I have no idea. <laughs> so he finished it. And he asked me to hand him the trowel and I walked into the oh. cement that he just laid. And I remember him throwing it up, calling me every name under the sun, which he had a right to. And finally we opened. Well, we're done. And I remember the night before we opened, they, we had, I think he had $1,500 to his name. And it was in the drawer. It was in the cash register. Yeah. Draw. Yeah. Draw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Draw. <laughs> I remember we were going to open up the next day and he said to me, um, everything I've got is in this place. I can't start again. Like This can't fail or I'm done. And I remember when we were building, you know, I was his dreamer my whole life. I'm like, we're going to have a hundred of these stores. And he'd be like, just shut up and eat. Try worrying about working on the one store. I've been a hundred stores already. I got a hundred stores. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, we're going to be international. We're going to, I'm going to take this. <laughs> and we, you know, he's like, how about just grab a spatula and do some actual work. And, and then we opened. And I remember people came. My favorite story of when we opened was people come to the window. My father would be like, get their name. Don't just give them a number, get a name. Because we didn't have any... You know, we would write everything down yeah. on paper. We had a regular cash register. And I remember the first time doing that, you know, working the window. I'm like, hey, you doing? He's like, good. And now, a thing that everyone knows now, because I've said it so much, when we opened, we did not have cheesesteaks. We did not serve cheesesteaks. What did you serve? What was the menu? We, it was pork and chicken cutlets. Wow. And I think he did hoagies. I'm not 100% sure about hoagies. But it was pork and chicken cutlets, roast beef, not steaks because there were so many steak places and he didn't want to compete. Right. But we worked it. Me, my father, my brother, Nick, the kid that I had to fight with yeah. back in the day, he worked there. Wow. And, <laughs> and 
you know, we were doing, I remember I used to wear this really long, I had this long feather earring, like, you know, I was my father's worst nightmare. (laughs) And um, there was a lot of tension between me and my father. There were many classic battles between me and my dad. We were just two completely different people and we were almost the same person at the same time. Yeah. That's why he's very hard-headed. I was very hard-headed. He's very stubborn. I was stubborn. And my brother, Nicky, was just different than me. Like, you know, he, you know, if my father said, you know, this is purple and it was red, he'd go, okay, it's purple. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not putting him down. You know, he, you know, he, he was a good son. He really was. I was trouble. Yeah. Always trouble. Did you, so in those early days, did you guys, did you have any chemistry when you were working together, getting the names, working the well, register? It, it, we had a different, like I was good at speaking with people. Like I always looked at myself, you know, my father's a worker. Yeah. My brother's a worker. Now I worked, I did the grill. Like there's not a spot in a position I can't do, but my, you know, I kept thinking, well, we need people to come here. And I was good at speaking with people mm-hmm. and I would do these crazy things and they allowed me to do it. I would go to radio station. I'd bring food. I would hound them. I would do interviews. I'd be like, check over here. People be driving down the street. I'm like, you come to Tony Luke's? Who's Tony Luke? You got to come. And then everything changed in 1994 because Philly Magazine voted us not only the best cheesesteak in Philly, but the best roast pork sandwich in Philly. So it was two. In the same. Wow. And business just doubled. And it opened the door for me to be me. Well, at what point did you start serving cheesesteaks? Like, was there oh, high- Oh, six months after. High demand, like people were saying, we, like, did, was that a conversation? Everybody that, that came, I'm glad you brought that up. Everybody that came to the window, we didn't serve cheesesteaks. So everybody would come to the window and we'd be like, we don't want to play. And they'd go, yeah, we can cheesesteak. We don't serve cheesesteaks. So Rose, we go, what do you mean you don't serve cheesesteaks? How can you be a store in Philly serving sandwiches? <laughs> you don't serve cheesesteaks. So we put it on and we cut our own ribeye and I remember- if we were going to do it, we were going to do it right. And yeah. we did it thin. We did it a little differently. We cooked it a little slower, a little longer. We made every sandwich to order. And then I remember thinking, we need to start weighing things. And I, I, I literally created this scale where we would put the pork in. It was kind of a basket. I had a guy weld it where the juice would go in. It was stainless steel. And, the, and then I thought in my head, you know, I'm like, you know, if you're doing... You know, 15,000 sandwiches a week and where a sandwich is supposed to be seven ounces, you're given nine and 10. Yeah. I remember going to my father going, I should go home now and like just collect the paycheck till the day I die because you add three ounces times 10,000 per week. There's my salary and some forever and ever. You know, I remember, like, yeah, yeah, right. You know, and I thought, you know, that's what I'm good at. I can make a steak with anyone. And, but what I was good at is those kind of things. It's like kind of streamlining things and trying to figure out who our audience was, doing interviews, doing stuff like that. And then I came up with this idea. And do you remember Prism? I went to them and I said, I want to do a commercial. I want to do a food commercial for local cable. What's Prism? It was a cable. Oh, okay. okay. And I walked in and they said, okay, no problem. And they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. And I'm like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. They're like, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, well, I want to direct it. I don't want you to direct it. They're like, no, you don't direct. We have direct. Yeah. yeah. You can have him. Yeah. You'll pay. I'll pay him. He ain't going to do anything. He'll just, yeah. not. <laughs> They're like, well, we're going to get a shot of the food. I'm like, yeah, no, we're, gonna, we're not going to show any food. 
And the guy said, what do you mean you're not going to show any food? We're not going to show any food. We're not going to show any making of the food. We're not going to show the inside. We're not going to do any of those things. Well, what are we doing? We're going to do a jailbreak with two convicts, and he's got to break out of prison because he's got to have a Tony Luke steak, and then his son's going to... And literally, they said, we don't want to take your money. I'm like, this is what I want to do. I'll pay the money. And I did jailbreak, and I knew that the whole concept of me with business was... There's a thousand cheesesteak places in Philadelphia. Right. And no one in how many decades could ever break the Holy Trinity? There was a Holy Trinity, and that was Pat's, Geno's, and Jim's. That was the Holy Trinity, and no one broke it. I don't care how many steak shops were in the city. What you knew, there were only three steak shops yep. that anyone in the world knew about. That was Pat's, Geno's, and Jim's, and that was it. So I thought, if I'm going to break into this crew... If there's going to be a fourth, you got to make some moves. Then I got to do something different. And I thought, what should I do? I want people to talk about Tony Luke's when they're not hungry. I want people to talk about Tony Luke's because it's a topic of conversation. So how do I do that? And I thought the commercials and I did these commercials that were ridiculous. They were outrageous. They had nothing to do with food. <laughs> and I'm sure there were some people that absolutely loved them. And other people thought, Tony's the biggest jerk, the biggest idiot I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> Why am I watching this stupid crap? But then they would go to work and say, did you see that dump? Who's Tony Luke's? I don't, I don't even know what it is. Is it a sandwich? I have no idea. They're on cable and the guy's a moron and he runs around like an idiot. <laughs> but, but they were talking about They you. were talking about me. And subconsciously in my mind, it was like, the more they said the name Tony Luke's, Tony Luke's, Tony Luke's, Tony Luke's, Tony Luke's the more they'd be curious about, well, I'm going to go because I thought if I get you there, I got you. You'll win. You just got to get them through the door. You. And my father and my brother never, like, the, never, to them it was just a, a huge waste of time and energy and money. And that's where the, the divide started. So then what happened was people were recognizing me more and more. So the commercials were working. And then people would come and be like, oh, there's Tony Luke, there's Tony Luke, there's Tony Luke. I started to do more stuff, then I started doing interviews, and then more things were happening, and more radio spots were happening, and then we got a call from the Food Network about doing a TV series for them. And I'm like, well, what's the series? And they were like, well, it'll be about food, and they were very vague about it. So I went to my father and my brother, and I said, look, Food Network wants to do it, and they were like, well, I'm not doing it. And my father's like, I'm not. You know, my brother's like, I'm, I'm, I don't go in front of the camera. Like, I'm not doing any of that. I'm like, well, I'm doing it. And, you know, we're filming the show, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here comes Bobby Flay. And I thought to myself, oh, Bobby, they must have told Bobby, I'm, I'm doing a pilot for the Food Network. And, you know, he's here to support me. That's what I'm thinking. And he walks over and he goes, hey, Tony, I'm like, Bobby. I'm like, if you watch the show, I'm really surprised. I'm like, Bobby. And he goes, Tony, you ready to do a throwdown? I'm like, throwdown? A, a, a what? And he's like, throwdown, me and you, cheesesteaks right now. And I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> now, I'm stricken with this terror. If I lose a throwdown to Bobby Flay, who's from New York, yeah, all of the work that I have done in the last five years or six years, whatever it was, to build the name Tony Lewis yeah. is now completely flush down the toilet if I lose. Yeah. So we go, we battle. My son, Tony, was probably one of the best grill guys I've ever seen in my entire life, ever, anywhere. Wow. 
and he's running stakes, I'm running stakes, and Bobby's trying to keep up, and it, they showed it a million times, and I beat Bobby, and you have no idea the sigh of relief when right. I beat him, because... He must have been so... And he said something that was kind of cool. He said, you know, people think it's easy to make a cheesesteak. It's just a grill and some meat and a spatula. You put some cheese on it, you put it in a roll. He said, but doing this throw down, I realized that there's so much to consider the temperature, the cut of the meat, how it's used, when you turn it, what kind of roll you use with the texture of the roll. There's all of these intricacies that go into making a cheesesteak that most people have no clue on. He said, which distinguishes one place from another. Yeah. And I had always said in every interview I ever did, even when we won Best of Philly, they were like, why is your cheesesteak the best in Philadelphia? In every interview I've ever done, I have never claimed to be the best. I always said, Tony Luke's, we do the best that we can. And we hope that most people will like it. But am I better than Pat's? No. Am I better than Gino's? No. I'm different. Just like Pat's is different than Gino's. Yeah. And Gino's different than Pat's and different than Jim's and Steve Prince's steaks. And I get very annoyed when, you know, someone will say or write, you know, they'll meet me and go, oh, you know, Tony Luke's is the greatest, you know, but you know, Pat's and Gino's suck. And I'd go, they don't suck. They don't. If there's no Frank Oliveri, Harry and Pat Oliveri, what, if, if there's no Pat's, there's no Tony Luke's. And there's no Geno's and there's no Jim's had it not been for that. But that's where the divide, when I did the show, then I did more Food Network shows. And then the popularity of Tony Luke's grew and grew. And then there were lines literally down the block. And, you know, we went to, you know, we had like 15 employees, you know, just in a shift. And we started to bake our own bread and, and life was Good. Yeah, as this was blowing up, were you? It was good. It was, I was, you know, Philly Magazine once, twice, Philadelphia Magazine Hall of Fame. And then we won GQ's Golden Dish Award for the best roast pork in the world. Not in the in the world. They went to Spain. They went to Italy. We won best roast pork in the world. And people were coming from everywhere. And I met all these people. And then what happened was my face became the face of Tony Luke's. Now, the three of us started it. The three of us worked it, my father, my brother, and myself. But they didn't really want the limelight. He never did. You know, my brother's like, I don't want to be on camera. I don't want to do it. So I did it. And that was where I was comfortable. I will put myself up in marketing against anyone you will bring to me. I literally had one guy say to me, you are literally the P.T. Barnum <laughs> of this era. Like, yeah. And, you know, to think about, to take a sandwich shop in an out-of-way place that no one would go to at that time, to literally being an international name and becoming a brand. And when I do speak to people in business, I say to them, if you got a restaurant or whatever it is, and it's really well and it's very famous, you have to make a call. You have to either be that famous restaurant or a brand, but it, it's very difficult to be both. Because, Can you explain that? Yeah. Well, because when you have a restaurant, you're there, you're in control. If you have two restaurants, uh, maybe another family member, but you can jump back and forth. Three restaurants, control gets a little bit harder. When you start getting into 20 and 30 places, the quality is a job. Like it becomes a job to keep the quality up. 
because you're not at every place. Yeah. And I wanted to franchise. Like I wanted to have a thousand stores. I wanted, and then that's where the, my father and my brother did not. And I remember going to my father and saying, look, let me run with it. I'll start a new company. You guys will get a percentage of it. And we'll open up all these stores and we'll have our store, which is the front street store, which is the original store. And then I will do all the legwork. I will go get the investors. I will do all that stuff and I will build a brand and we'll share in that brand. Yeah. And he said, okay. Yeah, it was fine because, you know, I was getting, and then I met Ray Rustelli mm. and then my whole world changed meeting Ray and we talked and I shook his hand and he said, I'll invest in the company. And on a handshake, we got started. Wow. And it was a lot of work and, it, you know, building the brand and getting it done. And, you know, and then we, it failed and then it worked and it failed. You know, you make mistakes. You open up a store, it fails. Well, this one, it fails. Well, this one. And you learned from every mistake. And Ray was fine. He was like, okay, let's go. Let's try. We learned. We'll try this. We learned. We'll try. And then things really started to go well, like really well. It was unbelievable and then i got called to co-host a series on spike tv yeah. called frankenfood and i remember you know there's my picture and josh right next to the lion king in times square you know and i toured with daryl hall and there's my name playing the Beacon Theater on Broadway. Wow. And, and when you oh, see that, you see your name there, you see your face, what are you, what, what's going through your head? Well, with, with the Times Square thing, it was good and it was bad. It led to another life of Tony Luke Jr. Yeah. And it was, um, it was a very self-centered, egotistical, you know, you, you, you make the mistake of believing what people write about you. Mm. You're on a billboard in Times Square. You're on a national TV show. And humility takes kind of a back seat. And people, you know, I got flown everywhere first class and driven everywhere first class. I had people that did makeup. I had people that did my wardrobe. I, and you get caught up in this unreal life because it is unreal, it's mm. not real. And you start losing sight of the things that are really important in life. Everywhere I went, people would come and I remember being at the store and I was upstairs with my dad and I, I can see it from his perspective now. See, the problem was I never had a real relationship with my father and he never was proud of me. Like never, you know, because I didn't work with my hands. Right. And it sounds like he wouldn't really understand or, or just doesn't buy no, into. No, he was not a stupid, very intelligent man, my dad, really. But he didn't understand, like he thought all of that was crap. Like, right, it didn't respect it as much as working right, with your hands. Right, so what I did was like, he couldn't fathom how I could be making this kind of money to go on a TV show, to be funny with food. Like you, you make money with your hands. You're a plumber. You're, yeah, yeah, you make stuff. You, yeah, you, you know, what do you do? That's not work, that's playtime. And you're making money. And I, I remember I was up in his office and one of the employees came up and said, 
there's a bunch of people downstairs that want to take a picture with Tony. Um, what do you want me to tell them? And I said, I'll be right down. And he looked at me and he said, I don't get it. And I'm like, you don't get what? And he was like, what have you ever done in your life that someone should want to take a picture with you? And then I realized there was this, there was a really bad disconnect. And, and, and look, let me tell you something. I blame myself for the disconnect because I, I worshiped my father. And I guess all children want their parents' approval. And my dad was, as much as we fought, he was the man I looked up to. He mm -hmm. was the one I wanted to make proud. And I knew that I couldn't. But then what I tried to do to overcompensate, which I believe drove my father and my brother further away from me, was in, in this urgency of making my father proud of me and this desperation, I would try to say, look what I've done. Like, hey dad, I just did a movie with uh, Dennis Hopper and Giovanni Ribisi, you know what I mean? I just, you know, all of his friends would be like, you know, your son's in a, you know, they're just home in a movie. You know, I'd be like, yeah. What I didn't, I, and I, again, I can't speak for my dad. But I think what I wind up doing was in my desperation for his approval, it came off braggadocious right. and cocky. So when you were saying, hey, dad, look what I've done, it felt like, like you hey, were saying, hey, look at this. And look, you did, you know what I mean? Yeah, look what I did. Right. I remember an incident where, you know, they wanted to take a picture and I guess my brother showed them to my father and they were like, no, Tony Luke, like I want to take a picture with him. You know, my brother was like, that is Tony Luke. He's like, no, no, the guy on TV. And I know that that bothered him. There started to build, I guess, an inner resentment. Yeah. You know, and I remember being at my brother's and there'd be comments like, well, how come you're on TV and your brother's not? I, I didn't think much of it then because my brother didn't want to do it. Right, like he, he didn't want to be on TV. Right, that wasn't what he wanted to do. And But I think as the business got bigger and bigger, the divide between us got bigger, but I didn't know that. Like I kind of was oblivious to it, but it was getting bigger and bigger and my father's getting more and more distant. And, and then everything they felt came out and it was... Was it a surprise? To me, it shouldn't have been but it was and you know to know how they really felt you know you never see your part in it but i had a big part in the way they felt but i mean in the end it just went down to what i did was not what they believed had any value the value was only in in the making and the food so we never were going to see eye to eye on that and you talk to people and you get both sides. So, uh, and then people kind of, you know, then when I got hit with the lawsuit, I had no idea. And then my father went on television. And then I, you know, I told my side, he told his side. And then people took sides. People wouldn't talk to me. Um, friends of my dad wouldn't talk to me anymore. Uncles wouldn't talk to me anymore. And there were people who would talk to me, wouldn't talk to him. And it was horrible. And, and I, I really, I labored over it because I, I love him. 
and I love my brother, and I still do. And uh, I hate that all that went down. And, uh, you know, my business was took a hit. And I remember telling Maria, I get hit every day, Maria, and I... I don't know why. Like I'm, I'm strong, but I'm, my knees are buckling. And uh, she said to me, "God's preparing you for something." I just don't know what it is. And I'm like, "Well, what could it be? Show canceled, job, family split apart, no money coming in. I mean, what else?" can happen and then I got the phone call that my son died <sighs> and now we come to the most recent incarnation of Tony Luke Jr. the anti-addiction stigma activist now when I was 12 years old I lost my godfather to a heroin overdose the story of the day I lost him is eerily similar to the story you're about to hear from Tony and hearing it definitely brought back some difficult feelings for me. So please keep that in mind as you or those with you listen forward. This story may be a trigger to those who have also experienced such trauma. I was just starting to understand addiction. Just starting, because I didn't. You know, I had a drug problem as a kid, but it was a drug problem. Yeah. And I thought, well, I stopped. One day I did all kinds of drugs. I had mixed, mixed PCP and Quaaludes and cocaine, crystal meth, Jack Daniels. Um, uh, I did a Dizoxin. I didn't overdose where they had to bring me back, but I, I got rushed to the hospital. My father actually took me to the hospital. And, you know, he was furious. I was young at the time. Yeah. Do you remember around where you're a teenager? Yeah, I was a teenager. And, you know, the doctor told my father I smoked marijuana for the first time, and I kind of freaked out. My father really didn't believe it, but yeah. he really didn't have a choice because yeah. you know, he would have killed me. I remember saying to him, if you hit me now, I'll die. And I stopped. Just like that. Yeah, yeah. because I had a drug problem. Right. And I didn't learn later on, which is when I speak now, I try to explain to people that someone with a drug problem and someone suffering from addiction are two completely different people that are not the same people. Tony had very low self-esteem, suffered from depression a lot, which is why he suffered from addiction. He went to rehab, first time I forced him in, the second time he wanted to go. He fell, Percocets, Oxycontin, but not heroin. Because to be honest, he always worked. He could afford to go on the street and buy Oxycontin. And, you know, he's not someone that's not doing an Oxycontin a day. It's someone doing, you know, 12 Oxycontin a day, 15 Oxycontin a day at $35 a pill. So he's losing his house. Every penny he makes is going towards his uh, addiction. And I would yell at him and we'd fight. <clears throat> that he couldn't just stop, what is wrong with you? Because I just didn't, I didn't know anything about addiction. I didn't. And before he died, I got to know it. And he came to me and he said, what do I do, dad? And I said, you gotta get a job, Tony. I, I, I don't, I'm in a lawsuit. I can't give you with me. I don't have it. There's, 
All my stores are franchised. I don't own any of those stores. People go, we got 27 stores. No, they're all franchised. I don't own them. So I can't put someone in a store. Like I can't walk in there. They're franchised. So I said to him, you got to apply for work. Because all he ever did was work for my dad or me. So he applied. He applied. And I said, Tony, you could do it. You're great in the kitchen. Like, you know as much as I do, if not more. Like, you can design it. He was great at designing kitchen. Like, any restaurant would be happy to have you as designer opening. And he applies to this company that's building. He gets goes in for an interview. He gets accepted. Not only does he get accepted, he gets a job making more than he was making before. So he's proud of himself. Now he's clean a year at this point. Because the job, everything, it, he was really working at it. He's so proud to come over to me and every day show me an email. Dad, look, look, because he didn't believe in himself. Look, look what they said about my work. And it would be an email and it would be, you know, outstanding work today, Tony. Unbelievable. And then he comes to me and I've never seen him so happy in his entire life. And he came to me and, and he said, they're going to give me my own store. Like, look at the email that I'm going to head the brand new store that they're opening. And I said, I told you. And he's like, I, I can't believe it. I, I, I can't. Because when you suffer from addiction, you've done a lot of things and you feel that you can never come back from that, that no one will ever believe in you again. And it was his first day. And they were going in for training. And he called me hysterical, crying. I'm like, what's, what happened? And he said, I got fired. I'm like, what do you mean he got fired? I walked in. They called me into the office and said that they don't think that I'm the right fit. And I was like, what are you talking about? You offered me the store. Like, have I not been doing it? Yeah, it, it just doesn't work. We're sorry. We don't really think you can get what we need at this time. And we got to let you go. And when I tell you, it literally was the nail in his coffin. And then he went right back to you. Like, it was, it was the affirmation yeah. that you suck. And, and he said, I don't get it. And then I went online, which in the two months that they trained him, they failed to do, whether they just didn't get to it or it was the last thing to do. And I typed in his name uh. and the first thing that popped up was for him getting arrested at Walmart on drug charges. And I know for a fact that they Googled him saw that he had an addiction problem and that he had robbed from the store and they fired him. Wow. They couldn't tell him that and it crushed him. Absolutely. To this day, I will never eat in one of those locations to this day. He was devastated. And he slipped back and I found a way to acquire the store that we have now, the one that I'm, the only one that the brand owns, which is in Sicklerville, New Jersey. Uh -huh. That's the store I'm at every day. 
He said, I've really been humbled, Dad. I said, Tony, it's going to take time for people to. But we got this, Dad. I, I got you. And he had no health insurance. He had been in a car accident the year prior. and He got hurt pretty bad. And he couldn't take pain meds. He was on like a muscle relaxer. And he was on antidepressants because he was dealing with depression. But now he had no health insurance. So, and I remember he was in so much pain as he was working. I said to him, Tony, if I got to sell a kidney, I'm getting you health insurance. Like I, at this point I'm broke. I'm literally, I mean, I'm not destitute, but I mean, I have not, I'm, I'm, I'm my legal bills are astronomical. I, I can't, I can I can't keep anything. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to rebuild what was, you know, the lawsuit damaged a lot of stuff on both sides. And, uh, so I said to him, whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to do it. This is a Sunday. He's mopping the floor and I can hear him moaning. And I look at, I said, Tony, leave it. I'll finish it. No, dad, I got it. I got it. I got it. No, 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 no. Leave it. Go home. I hugged him and I kissed him and we were closed on Monday. We opened again on Tuesday. And then Monday morning came, I got up early and it was Citizens Bank Park. I had to be there, take pictures because we're open at the ballpark again. So I had to come and yeah. hand out sandwiches, you know, and then do the, the PR stuff. The PR stuff. And uh, it was eight o'clock in the morning. I said, you know, I'm going to give him a call. And I'm going to tell him that how amazingly proud I am of him and that I want to apologize for not getting it before, but I really understand what I'm, I'm really starting to understand what addiction is. And I'm so proud that you're bouncing back. And, uh, I thought, you know what? He worked so late on Sunday and so hard. I'll let him sleep. I'll call him later. And in the day, and I got to be at the ballpark. So I take an Uber to Citizens Bank Park because I don't want to deal with the parking. And it was like in a basement, like of the Citizens Bank Park. It wasn't, and it, you know, these steps going down and I had a table set up and my phone rang and it was my son, Michael. And I had all this food on the table. And I said, give me one second. Cause when my kid calls, I want and I heard that it, it, and it was all broken up, but he was crying. And I'm like, why is he crying? Like, what, what, what he cry? And all I heard was dead, dead. I'm like, dead, dead. Who died? Who? So, and I can't hear him. So I run up the steps to go outside. And as I get almost to the top of the steps, my phone falls and I'm watching it slam down every step. And I'm thinking I broke the phone and I ran down. I grabbed the phone, I'm like Michael, and I hear it. You know, and I'm like, oh, so, and I remember literally busting out the doors and went, Michael, it's dad, he got, Michael, who died? What, what happened? And he said to me, Stacy called, Tony's dead. <laughs> and I, I remember I just fell. And I screamed. <laughs> he must have been in so much pain. I didn't have any money. And I had no health insurance. So he went and picked up a, a bag of heroin. And he overdosed. It was unimaginable to me that that would, that would be part of my life. And then that was the incarnation of another life. A different Tony. And 
Is that the Tony I'm talking to? Yeah. I took two weeks off. I went back to the store. It wasn't long after that, which I didn't realize. Some people take a year. Like I literally. I was going to say. I, I went. That's right, it. Yeah. And it was a couple weeks. And, and I was sitting at a table and an elderly gentleman came in. He hesitantly walked up to me. And he said, Tony, and I said, yes, sir. He said, uh, I just want to tell you that I'm very sorry about you losing your son. Because the paper just said, and the news was all over it, and it just said Tony's son passed away. It didn't say how he passed away. It just said he passed away. And uh, he said, do you mind if I ask you how he died? Was it cancer? And I said, no, he, he died of a heroin overdose. And he got real angry. And he said, damn it. See what these kids do, how they destroy your life, what they do. And I just thought, wow. That is the way my son was looked at every single day of his addiction. And it was like, I didn't get mad at the guy. I really didn't because he didn't get it. I hadn't gotten it. And that's when I knew what ultimately killed my son was the stigma. He really believed in his mind like every person suffering from addiction believes that his family would be better off if he died or she died because they look at themselves as huge burden because most people don't understand it. And even when you do understand it, it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult. You know, it's one thing to be suffering from addiction. It's another thing to be a family that has someone suffering from addiction because you have no control. You know, you are completely helpless to watch someone that you love more than life itself just slowly kill themselves and, and, and slowly just wither away into someone you don't even recognize. And you have to just stand by and watch it because the system is not set up to help them. The system is set up to help people with drug problems. It is not set up to help anyone that suffers from addiction. It's a spinning wheel of recovery centers over and over again. You know, and then the people say to me, well, they relapse over and over again. They, like there's some, some foreign creature, they relapse over and over again. And they have a name, you know, and they were loved and... They're not a number. They're human beings who suffer from a mental health problem. You know, when you drive by that person who's homeless or you drive by that person that's struggling, you know, try not to look at them with disgust and understand that that's a human being that's suffering. You wouldn't do that to someone who was crippled or suffering from cancer. So don't do it to them. And I tell everyone suffering from addiction, you really are not a lost cause. You really are loved. And I can tell you for an absolute fact 
that your family is not better off if you died. They are not. And just make an effort to understand it more because it, it affects everyone. It touches every single life. So it's been a couple years. You've made it your mission to impact the, the stigma, to make the stigma go away. Has there been anything else that has sort of helped you carry through? Have you returned to music? Music was the catalyst for saving my life. All those years I was writing, I would never know what I was playing. I would just play notes. And then when Tony passed, a few months went by and a friend of mine brought me a keyboard. So I looked at the piano, at the keyboard, and I thought, you're going to have to learn how to play. Because I want to write, only it's different now. If you listen to a lot of my old stuff and then listen to my stuff today, it's very different. I'm not the same person I was. You know, I used to say, why would God give me the gift of music? Why would God give me this? Why would he let me hear music in my head, melodies and arrangements in my head? Why would he give me this gift and then never allow me to use it? Because I got record deals. I lost them, not for what I did. I got this, I got that. I lost it, not because of the music. So why give me the gift? And I, and I realized, same thing with Tony Luke's. Why Tony Luke's? I realized that like everything else in life, I stopped driving the bus and I let God drive. And if I wasn't Tony Luke Jr. and my son died, who would have called me up for an interview? How many people die every day? No one. So I realized maybe this is why God gave you the gift, Tony. Maybe the plan all along wasn't for you to be the cheesesteak guy or the singer-songwriter then. Maybe all of that was school. Maybe all of it led up to this because this is why you were born. This is why you were given that gift. Music talks to everyone. It's energy. It fills the room. You can listen to a song and you could feel very depressed because that it, it, it just exudes this negative, this sorrow. It, it's an energy. It, it, it goes through you. Or you could want to dance and feel happy. And I knew, how do I use the gifts that God gave me to make people understand addiction? And I thought, okay, what did you want to say to Tony? That morning that you didn't call him. And I was listening through songs and I was driving and a Bob Dylan song came on called Make You Feel My Love. And I just burst out crying. And I said, that's what I wanted to say to him. And I came back and I worked with an amazing, amazing, amazing man named Dan Morrow. 
He's an incredible musician and an amazing songwriter. And I said, Dan, I want to do this song, but I don't play keys well enough to do it. I'm just learning how to play. And I need help with this. And he came in and he played the guitar and he played the keys. And we recorded this song, Make You Feel My Love. And I thought I was going to put it up on iTunes. And every single penny that it makes, other than the money that has to go to Bob Dylan, because right. he wrote it. Right. I'm not taking any of the money. So I went online. I said, look, please download the song. If you like it, download it. You'll be doing a good thing. And it started to get some downloads. It didn't make a lot of money, but it got some downloads. I finished the track that I that was done with an amazing gentleman named Joe Niccolo, who is nine Grammys, 30 million. You know, he's done everyone, Billy Joel. And here's the weird thing. I called Joe and I said, Joe, I've been doing a lot of writing again because most people just know me as Sandwich. And he said the greatest thing to me. He called me back. He goes, Tony, how are you? And I said, I'm good. He goes, listen, let me be, let me be straight with you. Everyone thinks they can write music. Most people can't. He said, now, I'm not saying that you can't write. He said, if you have something, send it to me. He said, I just, I want to be straight with you. Because everyone believes that everything, you know, but, you know, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to string you along, Tony. If you got something you want to. So I said, no, Joe. I was in this a long time. My skin is thicker than a shark's. I'm good. And I, I emailed him a, a track that I wrote called Walk Away. And uh, he calls me back. He's like, come to the studio. We have to put this down. Mm. I'm like, does that get your approval? Come to the studio. We'll put it down. <laughs> Shut up. Why aren't you here? <laughs> yeah. Now, here's where it gets really freaky. The song that I released is Make You Feel My Love. So we're sitting down. And I said to him, I got to tell you, I've met a lot of people in my life, but there's only one person, two, that if I met, I would literally be, and I've worked with Dennis Hopper and I've worked with everyone, John Travolta, I just did a film with when I did, I've worked with that, John was an idol of mine, I mean, I was, yeah, he was my idol for Oh, since I was a kid. Yeah. The reason I started music, my writing style, everything I love, why I love the piano itself, why I never learned before, which is ridiculous. Billy Joel is the reason I did music. And he looked at me and he said, you know Billy Joel's version of Make You Feel My Love? The River of Dreams album? I produced that album. We have now collaborated, as me and him are gonna to put together an amazing album to help with the awareness of addiction. A show after that, we're gonna, there's gonna be songs, there's gonna be artists on this album. It's gonna be unbelievable. Um, I am more excited than you could ever know Joe's got nine Grammys under his belt and I have a child that isn't here. I, like, I felt like God was saying, this is what I trained you for. This is what your whole life was about. And now I'm giving you Joe 
to, you know, and also Joe brings the ability to bring in artists that I could never. And then, you know, it, it brings me the opportunity to speak and just drives the message of addiction and the, the way it needs to be changed. I am so grateful that the word is getting out. Yeah. And I always say, it don't, don't have to be me. Yeah. Please go out there. If anything I said resonates with anyone, go out there. Every voice, every voice is important. Everything that you do is important. I told you, I get up and I speak to people. They're, the heroes are the people that are on the streets every day. The heroes are those people that are out there on their own time, giving AIDS tests and, and doing everything they could and bring people in and, and bringing them into their homes and, and getting them into recovery centers and, and making life. That's the hero. And it's sad. It saddens me that they don't know the world doesn't know their name. You know, because that's, that's, that's who's making a difference. You know, they're not getting paid. And they're out there every day because they were in it. And they're giving back and they're making a difference. And, and I can never say enough about all the people, the men and women, kids and families that every day make a difference to make someone's life better. Because you are truly the richest person in the world. And that's not me just being clichéic. That's the truth. I'd rather be that person than a billionaire any day of the week. And that is from my heart. And that's the God's honest truth. I could tell you in my lifetime, I have experienced the greatest highs any human being could experience movies, TV, music, billboards, Times Square, national television, a business, a chain, a brand, money. And I've experienced the worst tragedies that a human being can go through. And I'm still standing. And I'll be standing until God says, the journey's over. Come home. For more on Tony Luke Jr. and his mission, you can check out the show notes or head to podphillyhoo.com forward slash Tony. If you like the show, be sure you're subscribed and leave us a rating. You can also follow along on Twitter and Instagram at podphillyhoo. Philly Who is a Q9 production. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by me, Kevin Schmidlin, with associate production by Angela Gervasi and Bryce LaBelle, music by Lee Rosevere, artwork by Lauren Carhart, and a very special thanks to Bob Moore. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Till next time. <laughs>